Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Welcome, second captaineers. This is the Irish Times second captains podcast. I'm very excited about this one, lads. We got a serious era of podcast goodness coming up. Producer Mark Horgan here for Owen McDevitt with the Reverend of Reverence on my left here. Hello, Mark. How are you? And the Reverend of Irrelevance on my right here. Uh, probably, I would say a wordplay which is beyond your uh, your usual standards. So well played, Mark. Congratulations. And a sad looking Mark tomorrow. What's wrong with you? We got so much to look forward to in today's show, Murph. Yeah. It's Six Nations weekend after all. Yeah. That's what it's about, isn't it? Well, you can't stop thinking about Sean O'Brien and that endorsement deal he took from under your nose. That's why Irish beef is so tasty with the quality of grass we have and the climate we live in. That's money coming straight out of my pocket. Yeah, for if me- he came If he came up to me on the street, punched me in the face, took my wallet, then put many thousands of euro more into my wallet and then took that as well, then that's it couldn't have been more blatant. For many years you've been cultivating that relationship, Murph, with let's just say a well known fast food chain in Ireland that originated in Goal. I know. Call Supermarket. I like I don't know what more I can do, you know? But I, I still feel that Right, okay, Sean O'Brien. I mean, in some ways, it's a reasonably good fit for Supermax. He's a mm. farmer, he's from the country. He enjoys a burger, obviously, uh, <laughs> judging by the ad. Uh, but, I mean, there are other sporting events this year. You know, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, the Euros. Uh, I'm looking at the GA Championships. And is there someone in that, in that realm? The crossover you know, that, appeal. That could be, you know, that could be a better fit than, you know, the, the, the mono, you know, the, the monoculture that is Sean O'Brien. Yeah just something for them to think about I suppose uh, I, what I'm saying is that yes I have been slighted terribly but does it is that the final nail in the coffin of a possible endorsement deal involving myself and Supermax down the line you know that's that's probably too much that's going too far how many snack boxes does a man have to eat to get a deal do you know I know we I should know. probably ask Johnny that <laughs> yeah exactly I mean don't ask me ask the man who took my I mean got that deal well, glad you're cheering up, Murph, because today we're giving the people what they want. No, not McDevitt back, as many of you may be thinking. That'll be on Monday. For a long time, you've been asking for us to get Matt Williams and... Shag Hogan. ...onto the bait, Joe Schmidt. That's done. You want some more Ken's Ghouls? Done. 
Some of you don't want more Ken's Ghouls. Also, Dunn will be in today's football show, so you can listen to that particular <laughs> podcast or this particular podcast, Ghouls Free. You've been asking us to get US Murph's thoughts on Trump. We'll do that a little later. And we'll also discuss the nonsense coming in from Maria Sharapova and today's Irish rugby team selection. But because we're putting our listeners first today, let's hear from them. I've got a call here that says, you're the most boring, predictable, condescending interviewer around. Go back to lecturing. You have the charisma of a sick bag. Oh, God. That's just it. I just wow. mentioned that you, not me. Okay, ain't nobody f***ing with my click, click, click. Click, click, ain't nobody fresher than my We don't normally click, broadcast all click, the, the stuff that click, comes from scum click, around the country. Click. Yeah, I should mention to become one of our scumbags of the day, just email us at secondcaptains at irishtimes.com. Today's scum is John Carroll. Mor- he writes, morning gents, long time listener, occasional tweeter, first time scumbag slash complainer. A scumbag of mission straight off the bat there, he gets a bonus point for that. I like this lad. Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, he's, he's owning the fact that he's a scumbag. I like that. Among the many reasons I listen to the football show so religiously bi-weekly is the mix of great insight and humour that Ken, Owen and Murph bring to their sports analysis. For the record, I'm not in the significant minority that dislike Ken's FA Cup ghouls roundups. I think it's bloody good, in fact. All good so far. Still no mention of who does the audio beds, though. So. Well, whatever, man. You, you, I think you've got quite, gotten quite enough mentions in these emails recently. Anyway, John, however, there is one area that I feel you guys let yourself down time and time again, specifically Murph and Owen. I am, of That's course. bullshit. Re- Sorry, what is it? <laughs> I am, of course, referring to your ability to correctly identify who or what Ken is referring to when he asks either of you to make a guess. When Ken says, I am, of course, talking about, I immediately think in my head, for example, Chelsea. Straight off the bat, Chelsea. But for some reason, two usually razor-sharp sports analysts completely freeze up and make bumbling <laughs> guesses like Stoke, uh, Liverpool or Brighton and Hove Albion before Ken lets them know the real answer. Is this a ploy to make Ken feel superior in his knowledge of soccer so that he doesn't feel bad about having to sit outside when Shaggy and Jerry rock in the studio? <laughs> Which actually happens, uh, Yeah, he's John. perfectly happy with that. If not, I'd like to be brought in as an extra captain, second captain, third captain, whatever, for these very specific occasions when a first-time correct guess is required. Keep up the otherwise amazing work. All the best, John Carroll, who's based in London. You know, John has a valid point here, lads. Um, you and Owen seriously need to up your game. We actually have an example from Monday's football show here. Have a listen. Can't say he's recovered from the injury. It's amazing. Uh, even injuries. Can't, he's like Nicolas Cage in uh, in what you call it. Um, what was that movie with uh, with uh, John Malkovich? Con Air. Uh, Con Air, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Con Air, yep. If only you could see the look yep. of the, the completely vacant look in my eye. Moments after Ken is Ken's trying to it. bond with you in these instances that John Carroll writes about, Murph. He's extended the olive branch to try and make you two feel like you're at his level. I'm yeah. worried this could become an issue in the future. Mm. Yeah, I'd, well. The listeners seem to know I what Ken is talking about. I get it right more often than I get it wrong. Do you think John Carroll really knows Ken better than you? No, of course not. I mean, I, I know Ken. He Well, Ken has told me many, Don't many times. Don't you ever talk about me! <laughs> Ken, Ken, I've known Ken now for, for 12 years he counts me as perhaps his closest friend in show business <laughs> uh, yeah, no no of course not ok well let's put this to the test because through the futuristic medium of Skype John Carroll welcome to the podcast what how's it going lads you're the first scumbag we've ever put on air John congratulations oh, hello, John. This is I know I know I feel, I feel a bit like Homer Simpson when he was going around slapping people with uh, gloves challenging them to jewels <laughs> and stuff and then uh, never thinking that I'd get uh, taken up on the challenge but uh, here you're, we are you're a dub originally John I am I am from Marina and where do you, you live in whereabouts do you live in London now uh, out in Leightonstone, so East London, around near West Ham, and uh, 
and Leighton Orient. Murph, you've but, got uh, a question about Leighton Stone. T- uh, tell me now, um, John, would that be close to, to Big Ben at all? <laughs> Wouldn't. Uh, he, but, Murph uh, only knows Big Ben and uh, Newton Airport. <laughs> no, it? no, I, I am curious about this though. Um, what what do they call um, what do they call the Lewis over there as well? <laughs> well, um, they don't really have an equivalent thing where uh, where two trains don't actually meet uh, up in the middle. Uh, but, yeah, uh, we, they, we have they, them uh, there, don't we, John? <laughs> we have them there. John, are there any fellow second captains listening friends you want to give a shout out to? Um, not really, because I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong and I don't really want to tell anyone about it, but I'm sure I'm going to uh, cut out tomorrow. Sounds uh, like that, like soon. a lot of our podcast listeners, that we're his friends. <laughs> yeah, exactly, that's it. John, answer me this. Where do you mostly listen to the podcast? Uh, it- at work. Um, I'm currently still in work, but in a, in a, in a quiet corner in the, in the boardroom. So, uh, yeah, so I usually listen, listen during the day. Would you ever listen in the bath like Richie Sadlier? Not usually. I don't. I don't have a bath actually. Oh, I'm more and, of a shower uh, man. The shower, yeah, yeah, and uh, don't have a, a waterproof case for uh, for my yeah. iPhone or, or a laptop. And so, John, and John, tell me now, what do you think of those, you know, showers that are in baths? <laughs> I, I, I hate that. You don't. Oh, you, I, know, you know what I'm talking about. You're going I to do. I do. I, I used to have one back when I was yeah. a kid, but now I, I think I think baths kind of went out. Uh, and do you put the, do you put the mat down in the thing? You know, the non-slip mats. Because I, no. I find I, I lose my balance in those things very easily. <laughs> I actually, no, I have a mat outside the, the shower, but the, the actual... Oh, well, of course you have to, John, John, well, obviously you do. John, we're not idiots. Obviously, have a mat outside the shower. Who uh, Any other crack, John? No, <laughs> uh, no, no just, just this. Right. Just, just more of these. <laughs> just joking. Right, John, thanks so much for, for your mail. It's now time to put your theory to the test. Right, because right. Kenneth, Let's go for it. I want you to start talking about various things, okay? And the first person to correctly guess what you're thinking of is the winner. John, if you guess correctly first, okay, we're going to have a selection of these now. You win a Second Captain's Limited Edition Euro 88 t-shirt. Murph, wow. if you win, that precious stock remains in our offices. So I have absolutely no <laughs> John walks away with nothing. Okay. Right, let's do it. The best of let's luck to it. both men. We've got about 10 thoughts in total here. Let's delve right. inside Ken's brain. Go for it, Ken. Yeah, well, I, I suppose we should talk about football at some stage. And there is, Go on, Ken. There's no, <laughs> there's no doubt what the big game is tonight as Liverpool face Manchester United in the Europa League. Liverpool, of course, the most successful English side in the competition, which Manchester United have never won. It has been won seven times in total by English sides. We know who the last one to win it was. It was, of, of course. Of course, uh, of course mm. Liverpool, of course. Um, oh, jeez. Incorrect. Uh, Chelsea. Chelsea. Yeah, yes! Was, Chelsea. Yes. Absolutely. Chelsea, the Benitez Blues of 2013, yeah, uh, who are not even the most successful London side of the competition. That, of course, would be... Yeah, uh, that's um, Spurs. Spurs. Oh. Spurs, yeah. Yes, but, yeah. But can you name the other English team to win it, of course? Um, uh, Newcastle. Castle? No. Newcastle, back when it was the Fairs Cup, of course, Kent. That's well, the Fairs Cup... The Fairs Cup is uh, not a UEFA competition, of course. So uh, it was, in fact, Ipswich. Ipswich Ooh. managed by Bobby Robson. But if Bobby Robson's name was to appear in a Sinn Féin election 2016 pamphlet, what would he probably be called? He, uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, That's not fair. You know this, you know this, Murph. Uh, uh, what? Bobby's... Booby Robson. Booby <laughs> Robson. Yes, yes. That's Good right. Job. We will never forget Booby Sands. Uh, <laughs> now, you mentioned the, the Intercity Ferris Cup and not UEFA competitions. And the records uh, from that era don't stand, including the proud record of a certain Leeds player who was the competition's all time second top uh, scorer. But who was he? Of course. Uh, yeah. Sniffer. No. Sniffer uh, Clark. Yeah. No. 
Uh, of course, John Toshak, obviously. It's Peter Larmer. John Toshak, I don't think, played. Mm. But, I mean, you didn't know it was Larmer, but can you name any of his three nicknames? Or even, you know, one of the three. Tosh. Uh, Larmer nickname. Larmer. Tosh. Go on, will you, John? <laughs> Lash. Lash is one of them. Lash. Uh, Hotshot. Yeah, Hotshot! Yeah, come on! <laughs> And Thunderboots. <laughs> That's two apiece. Uh, Thunderboots. The fact yeah. is, the Intercity Fast Cup was a name that you could set your watch to. The English just don't seem to have any respect for this competition since it was potentially renamed after the Greek goddess Europa, who was, of course, famously seduced by Zeus, who had transformed himself into which animal? Uh, Brighton and Hove Albion. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Uh, Falcon? He was a white bull, and once he had lured Europa into sitting on his back, he took off and swam to which island off Greece was it again? Which island did he? Uh, that was uh, Greece, I believe. Oh, you know that? Crete. Crete. Yeah, that was Crete. Crete. And what do you Crete. call people from Crete? Crete. Uh, Crete. <laughs> I think, uh, I've won a place this to It's a today. victory yeah. for Murphy. Oh, oh four two, John. Yeah. Your theory, I'm afraid, is obliterated. Yeah. Murphy, you're vindicated. Don't you open your mouth about the best? I want to make this a regular slot. I want to make a regular. <laughs> it's been such a success there. It if has. you feel you're in the same wavelength as Ken, and more accurately, you're bigger friend to Ken uh, than Murph or Owen, email <laughs> secondcaptains at irishtimes.com with the subject Ken's friends. Two you're, Z's in that, Murph. You're not serious. Second captain's <laughs> T search for all victors. John Carl in London, thanks for listening to the show. Unfortunately, no because you lost. I have to press this button here. <laughs> That's one of the terms of Ken's friends. If you lose, we will hang up on you. Uh, That's nice. That's real nice. Well played, Murphy. Well, you know, I got there in the end. His guess of Brighton and Hove Albion as was a it? possible al- animal that Zeus turned into. I mean, I'm not entirely sure that was... I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know that he's on anything like the same wavelength. I did like the fact that he got Booby Robson, though. Yeah, that's Very like. good. Very good. Tosh Just was a disgrace yeah. for Peter Larmer. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone knows it's Hotshot Lash and Thunderboots. Uh, John's living the life in London there. Hi to all the London crew, by the way, the city with our biggest listenership outside of Ireland. We should do a show there, lads. London crew, let us know if you want a live recording of the show and the podcast in your city and we'll make it happen. Email or tweet us at second captain. Sound good, Ken? Sounds like a good idea. Mm, it sounds like another one of your Horg specials. Mark, that's my that's that's what I call Mark Horgan's really exceptional broadcast ideas. All right, let's talk Six Nations. Chipper, oh, Chipper oh, it, and Wales are over the line again. Seven for two minutes gone. Of Murrayfield, Sean O'Brien smashing his way through. It could still be on for England. And England and Ireland are possibly watching this in despair. Popot says enough is enough. The title is going to Ireland. Okay, Shane Horgan joins us as usual. Hope you're well, Shane. Murph, uh, the 23, please. Uh, Simon Zebo starts at fullback. Then it's uh, Trimble, Payne, Henshaw, Keith Earls. Halfbacks are Connor Murray and Johnny Sexton. Then the forwards, Jack McGrath, Rory Best, Mike Ross, Dunnica Ryan, Devon Toner. And then the back row is CJ Stander, Josh van der Fleer, and Jamie Heaslip. Replacements? Uh, Sean Cronin. I asked for the 23. <laughs> I'll give you your 23. Sean Cronin, Keane Healy, Nathan White, Ulton Delan who a lot of people were hoping would start. Uh, Reese Ruddock, Kieran, Kieran Marmion, Ian Madigan and Fergus McFadden. Yeah, Shane, ahead of the announcement, we were hoping to see McCluskey uh, get another shot at 12, maybe. And as Murph said, Delan to get a start too. And Jerry and Simon on Monday, um, they mentioned that the fans would have something to get excited about with this game if a few lads were making their home debuts from the start. It's just Van de Fleer who'll do that now. Is it a conservative selection? Yeah, it is. And I think it ramps up a pressure on performance as well. Um, because something has to change for Ireland at the moment. Um, they need to, um, for themselves and, and for supporters, I think they need to up their performance. Um, they need to try 
different elements and they need to be um, a little bit more accurate in some of the things they are doing. They'd get a bit more slack if you brought some uh, young players on. I'm, uh, you have to get the balance of, of bringing enough players in, but I think we'd seen with uh, Ulton Delan, there would be no problem with him slotting in there. I also would have liked to see uh, McCluskey um, get a further opportunity with Henshaw in the centre. I think sort of long-term I think everybody can recognise that there's there's potential there. Certainly Gary Ringrose will come into the conversation as well. But given that we're out of the competition, I think that it would have been smarter to maybe uh, try and develop a a longer term um, centre partnership. And uh, he has chosen not to do that. So I think what we would like to see is a, a sort of a change in the style of what Ireland are trying to do because they haven't done it with selection. Just thinking back to after that England game, Shane, when Joe Schmidt was asked about McCluskey in the centre, he picked more of the faults that he did during the game rather than the positives. Are you surprised that he wasn't given a chance? In the, and what was your assessment of his, his performance against England? I thought it was good. I thought um, Joe does have a tendency to talk down um, young players and their performance. He does tend to highlight the, the negatives and, um, and the work-ons, as he'd call them. Uh, but at the same time, maybe he had it in the back of his mind that um, it was uh, he was going to have pain available for the next day, and again it gives him a little bit of um, room to work with selection, buys him a little bit of uh, latitude. Now, um, I think he brought the guy in. He did well. He's been doing well for Ulster all year. I think he offers something uh, different as well. And I'd like to see Henshaw play more games at 13. So um, I think if you if you take all those factors into consideration, um, I'd like you know that I think the the move would have been to keep those two in the centre. Then that opened up pain potentially for our run of fifteen, which has been his traditional position uh, or position that he's played a lot of rugby in, uh, particularly for Ulster, and he's done quite well for Ulster there. And it might have been worthwhile having a look at him at fifteen. I think we've seen um, some of Zebo. I think um, he's he's getting to a certain level, but he doesn't seem to be able to kick on from that. Uh, maybe it would be worthwhile um, seeing pain at 15. OK, Shane, stick with us because Matt Williams joins us now. How are you doing, Matt? Very good, Mark. Very good. Lovely to talk to you again. Yeah, great to talk to you too. Listen, we want to dissect where we're at at the moment with the Six Nations because it's obviously been a while since we've had nothing to play for Bar Pride with two weekends still to go and it's certainly uncharted territory for Joe Schmidt. So the last time we had you on the show was before the start of the Championship and I think it's fair to say that at that point and actually many times prior to that in our show you've been very critical of Joe Schmidt and his approach particularly to attack. Um, I presume your views have been copper fastened since we last spoke? <laughs> Uh, mate, look, I, I, I hate being negative because uh, rugby's been so wonderful to me and, and Irish rugby in particular, and you want to be positive. But, you know, you've also got to be honest, and um, I, I'm hugely disappointed and, and quite, to be honest, pretty pretty dismayed at, at the direction of the Irish team and, and especially their attack, which is, uh, is leading them to be in the position they're in in the World Cup and in this Six Nations. Just in the last game with England, was there any kind of shoots of positivity, particularly in the last 20 minutes, that, that made you feel a little bit more optimistic about things? Well, look, to be honest, man, I think that, that term, you know, the green shoots and, mm. uh, you know, there's things to look at, I, I thought was, uh, I think it's the, it's the positivity about the Irish people and the support that Joe's got from, from the public. And, and it's not about attacking Joe. He's a wonderful man, a great coach, had a, had a fantastic record. Uh, but if, we, if we're saying that's factual there, and, and I don't want to attack a coach because I am a coach and I hate being attacked <laughs> when I was in the role, but I, I thought that was absolute rubbish. I, I think there is absolute, the structure that the Irish are playing in attack is, is non-existent. Now, what we saw was the guys being unbelievably brave, 
very, very, very committed to the jersey, to each other, their captain and their coach, and trying their heart out. But there is no deception on who is getting the ball. So when, when an Irish, in, in attack, when a ball is passed to an Irish player, the opposition know who is getting it before he gets the ball. And so even though the Irish player is trying his heart out and giving everything he has to that jersey, the white team last, last uh, game knew he was going to get the ball, as they have done in the last 10 to 15 games, and two defenders are taking the green attacker. So there is no hope for him to offload. There is no hope for him to drive forward. The Irish attacker is using no footwork, so he can't get to the space between them. Because there's two defenders, there is no space. So he's just running headlong into the defensive line. And even when they go wide, there is no deception. There are no players in motion. There is no one holding the, the defence. The defence out wide knows exactly who's going to get the ball, and they're getting tackled. And while they're brave and the ball is moving, there's just no hope of, of breaking down the attack. And um, that's why we're just not scoring tries. And I, I, I'm really bored with myself having to keep saying this, mm. but why I'm bored is because it happens game after game after game. She- and, and unless there's a big change, I think uh, Ireland are in real trouble for the rest of the year. Shane, I think it's fair to say that you've consistently been a very strong believer in Joe and his philosophy. You've obviously played under him. You know how he works. You certainly know how Joe, the Leinster days, works. And I've heard you on a number of occasions refer to how Ireland having their possession one of, if not the best coach in the world. Can you see where Matt's coming from? He, he, and he's been speaking about this for quite a while, uh, writing in the Irish Times and on our show. Joe, he's a nice bloke, very good coach, but he's off track and he's a limited game plan. Well, I think uh, whether Joe is a nice guy um, and a nice fellow, which uh, which he is, well, that has nothing to do with uh, him as a coach. It certainly has nothing to do with him as a coach at the moment. I think he's also got a, Joe's a lot of goodwill uh, behind him because of the type of game that he played under Leinster and the incredible success he has had while he's been with Ireland. Uh, so, but we need to set that aside um, because the conversation we're having with Matt particularly at the moment, is what's going on in the Six Nations. And um, I think um, there are elements of Ireland's play that uh, have been substandard. I think some of the things that Matt has mentioned there ring true, but others don't. And I think um, there has been um, uh, a tendency to, to say that all the attack is uh, stunted and it's, it's, uh, there's no deception, there's no subtlety, uh, when that hasn't been the case. And I think if you take the first two plays, in fact, of the game against England uh, uh, last uh, a couple of weekends ago. Um, there was ambition shown in the way Ireland were playing. Um, there was deception and ingenuity in the, pa- in, in the moves, but there wasn't the execution by the players. And I think our plays from deeper um, have been... There have, you can see the hallmarks of what Joe Smith is trying to do, and you can see a game plan there that will, if executed properly, and the moves are accurately executed will break down the defence. I think what we have a big problem is when we get further into the opposition territory uh, and then I think you do see some of the, the traits that um, Matt has, has mentioned there. There's not enough animation. I think we're very predictable on uh, our ball carriers. Our defence defenses can collapse down around them. There's a, there is um, a tendency not to try and offload the ball. And uh, defending Ireland, especially when they're in the opposition 22, when they should be most dangerous, is probably the easiest time to defend them. But I certainly don't think that it's an overall game plan. I think that at the moment, what we are seeing is 
a kind of a latent conservatism that's coming through maybe from, from Joe. He's a very hands-on coach. He's very demanding. And I think especially in the 22, the idea of retaining the ball um, is overriding uh, the chances and the chance that you have to take or the risk that you have to take to, to score tries. What do you think, Matt? Look, I, I um, watched uh, Leinster when Shane was playing there and I love watching Leinster playing when Joe was coaching because it was a philosophy that I would aspire to and they played magnificent rugby and I, I had nothing but admiration for it and, uh, you know, watching them in the Heineken Cup final when I was working uh, uh, with, with some of the guys there and watching Shane play was fantastic and I, I think the game plan that I'm seeing at the moment, and Shane knows Joe better than me, but the game plan I'm seeing is, is, is light years away. It's, it's, it's totally opposite. And, and while you have to retain the ball in the 22, and I agree with what Shane said, I'm not seeing the, the positiveness that Shane sees, and, and I, I, wish I, I wish I could. Um, but when you look at the statistics and the facts that, that, that we're only scored more than two tries since November, against T1 team since November, um, 2014, the only time we've scored more than two tries against Tier 1 teams was last year's Six Nations against Scotland in the last game. You've you got to start saying, look, this is not a one-off thing. This is not, you know, we can't blame this. The guy drops a ball, you know, that, that's it. This has been coming on for so long, and the team are in a funk. The team are in a hole. They don't know how to get out of it. And this is a huge problem because Italy, they should beat Italy. Well, let's put this aside. Italy are, Italy are poor. Scotland aren't. Scotland aren't a bad side. They're, they're, they're playing good rugby. They're not as talented as Ireland. They're playing good rugby. But then you're going to come up against South Africa three times, New Zealand twice, and Australia. They could go for this season. They, they could only win one game in 2016. That's not beyond... And that game could be Italy. That's not beyond the realms of possibility. If they beat Scotland, they can only win two games. Because if you don't score tries against the Southern Hemisphere nations, you have got no chance. And I am not seeing anything in that side that, t- that gives me any. I'm being honest here that they're going to score. They got, they got the ability to score tries. They are brave. They're trying. They're gutsy. But there is nothing there that's going to beat these sides. And they're a chance of losing against Scotland. They have a big chance of losing against Scotland. Not saying they will. It's at home, but they're a big chance. Now that's that's a really that's a that's not a bad year. That's not a bit of a worry. That is a disaster, and that could cost Joe his job. Now, I don't want that, but what I'm trying to say is, for God's sake, change, lads. For God's sake, let's look at this and say, what you're doing ain't working. Let's be honest. Let's just sit here in brass tacks. And if you don't change, you're going to get pumped. And Ireland need to keep Joe, but they don't need to keep him if if the team keeps performing like this. Ultimately, the coach is responsible. And he was responsible for some unbelievably magnificent performances at international level and some great results. I don't think the performances were necessarily brilliant in the last six nations. This was coming through there. But this is really getting into serious stages here now. And uh, I, I'm, I, I wish I could find a way to agree with Shane. I'm, um, and Shag and I have known each other long enough that, that we're, we're big boys and we can do that. But I don't agree. I, I, I found that, that the performances and the continued performances over more than 12 months are very, very disheartening. Matt, I don't want to trot out the same facts that are always put to you and have been, um, you know, since that article you did and speaking to our speaking to us before the the start of the Six Nations. But Joe Schmidt's had five years in Ireland. He's had five trophies. He's won the last two Six Nations. Um, it's his first season without it, without winning silverware. 
and the obvious things about O'Connell, Driscoll, Darcy, Sean O'Brien, Peter O'Mahony all out, you can't seriously be saying that regardless of what happens in this Six Nations, that he could be out of a job or he could be struggling, um, regardless of what happens in these last two games. Uh, mate, I'm not saying now, but uh, look, you, you, come, you come to the end of November and you're one and ten, or you're two and nine, um, you're in trouble. And he's going to be under real pressure at the end of the year. And you know what? Rightly so. If you watch the first few weeks of the Super Rugby down here, um, the thinking that is going into the rugby through all the New Zealand teams, and we're not surprised at that, the Brumbies and the Waratahs in Australia, the rest are pretty ordinary. But the South African teams have changed unbelievably. The rugby that has been played by the Lions in particular is incredible. The footwork coming out of New Zealand is amazing. They have gone on to another level again. Typical of the Kiwis, they're so organised. You lose McCaw, you lose Carter. The, the, the standard of the play and the brilliance of the attack, and that's what we're focusing on here at the moment, is wonderful, is wonderful. And the Southern Hemisphere teams, will, in, in June, I'm, I'm sort of giving you a bit of a heads up, they're, they're going to put a lot of points on the Northern Hemisphere teams. I'm talking 50 points. The, the, the rugby they're playing at the moment is admirable. It is really enjoyable. I'm not saying it because I'm from the South. I'm just trying to be factual here. I'd, I'd love to see Irish rugby successful. I mean, and Evan Shane knows that and you know that. But I do believe if you come out and you get to the end of the year, and as, it doesn't matter who you are as a coach, and you are 1-10, you're in trouble. Shane, we've scored two tries in three Six Nations games. That's 35 points in all. The lowest in the championship, Italy have four tries and 50 points. England have nine tries. Have teams worked us out? Because we can debate Ireland's style of play, but one thing's for sure, it's not an option to play like we did because it certainly seems that that's the case, that they've worked us out. Take a really obvious example of high ball catches like box kicks or crossfield kicks. Earls, Dave Kearney, Rob Kearney, Trimble, something that's been a real uh, attacking option for us. They've been inferior to the likes of Anthony Watch and Dan Bigger and Liam Williams in this area. Um, well, we haven't been doing it as well. We haven't been executing the those kicks as well. Also, so it's, it's more think, about, it, again, just to go back to your previous point, this all seems to be, or a lot of it from your perspective, is, is a lack of accuracy from our players. Well, there's a, there's a couple of things here. Um, um, Joe Schmidt is not an untouchable coach. He's a very good coach. Uh, he's got a lot of good ideas. He's got a history uh, that backs, uh, backs him up and gives him a lot of leeway. He's also a coach that, at the moment, um, has had a huge turnover of players. And we know, in particular, that cohesion in teams is very important. Another factor is that um, he's had provincial teams that have not been performing at the level that they were previously, and he's still won two Six Nations. But that does all of those things um, do not make him untouchable. And I think there are errors in his game, uh, in the game plan, and certainly within uh, Opposition 22, as I mentioned earlier on, I think that they're looking very conservative, and that the risk-reward ratio isn't good enough. I think your players that are inhibited. Now, whether that is uh, um, an overt thing coming from Joe, or if it's a latent pressure, Joe needs to address it, because players aren't taking, aren't willing to, to take enough risks or animate enough. They don't have enough players willing to take the ball um, with a little bit of subtlety to make the opposition uh, worry and um, and not collapse down on the, on the main defender. Now, that's a huge thing. If you do look, if you really look at the game plan, if you look further out in the field, uh, Ireland are actually have been one of the teams that have been trying to play the most rugby. And the statistics, and uh, and, and uh, Matt has mentioned the statistics, the statistics would back me up on this. They're the team that have been trying um, the most 
a deep uh, attacking play in their d- defensive zone. And to be honest with you, I think there's been on occasions, because of some of the pressure that's come on about playing rugby, I think has maybe seeped through to likes of Johnny Sexton. And on occasion, I think he should have actually put his foot through the ball because um, they were stagnating a little bit. Um, but I think the further out the field that you are, uh, Ireland have certainly been trying things, but they haven't been executing it properly. Now, there's a couple of things there. Uh, the players themselves, I think a, a large number of them, are capable of performing at a higher level. They're just not challenging their skill to its utmost level. They're playing a little bit within themselves because they've been doing the same thing at provincial level, and it's more difficult to challenge yourself at the Six Nations level. Um, that and there's a number of players I think at the moment that aren't performing at an international class and Joe does not have a raft of players uh, nor would it be wise to bring a raft of players in to make changes uh, so Ireland can play at the, at the very highest level um, as a team that they have been doing previously. Speaking about the quality of the Six Nations, uh, Matt, you spoke pre-tournament about how there was not one word about the, the tournament in the New Zealand or Australian media, how they can't sell the TV rights because it's not attacking rugby. Um, have you seen any evidence of development of the team so far in the, in the tournament to change that kind of perception? Look, I think um, England have moved forward. I think Eddie Jones um, will have a positive, has had a positive influence on England. Uh, but the tournament as a whole is one of the poorest I can remember. Uh, I think if you look back, let's say, to one of the great tournaments, the 2003 tournament leading up to the World Cup, uh, where England uh, beat Ireland, sadly, pretty hard, strongly on a day in the old beautiful old Lansdowne Road. But you think of the great players who were in that tournament. You go through the Irish side, you had Keith Wood, you had Brian O'Driscoll and Shane and Dennis Hickey, you know, the great players of, of, of that Irish era. You go to the to the English side and you had Delalio and you had Johnny Wilkinson and so on through through that Martin Johnson, through that incredible English side. You know, all-time great players. Galtier was playing for France. You look across the Six Nations at the moment, there is not, you know, any, are there any all-time great players playing. The calibre of the player at the moment in the North is poor. And I think a lot of that has to do, certainly the French and English premierships are, are, are making things very difficult for everyone, including themselves, because... They're not producing as many of their own international players because they've got so many foreigners there. But also the, the, the um, mentality of the coaching has been very poor, I think, right across the board. And the skill execution has been very poor right across the board. Compare that to the quality that we saw in the World Cup. Compare it to what we're seeing in the aiming rounds of the Super Rugby. And it's, it's, it's got to be a worry for the, for the Six Nations. But then you go back and say, well, look, they're using the same scoring competition they did in... Uh, 1840, you know, or whenever the competition started, 1880, and they haven't changed. There's no encouragement to score tries. There's no encouragement to change. Let's still do 2-1-0 on the point score. Now, that hasn't been in the Southern Hemisphere for 15 years. The competition is really lacking behind. I know it's a great event. I wish I was there seeing it. I love going to the games for the event. It's just a shame the 80 minutes of rugby is so boring because the day is fantastic. You know, you've got to get the rugby moving forward, and it is. it has been a very, very disappointing tournament from my behalf. I watch it, I love it. Down here in Australia and New Zealand, you would not know it was on. What do you think in comparison to the Southern Hemisphere, Shane? Uh, I know Matt will allude to the point that the way we're playing, the way the Six Nations are playing, it's setting us up for failure in four years' time again. Um, I think there's the, there's something in that, certainly. I, I think 
um, Matt is right. I think it's been a poor tournament this year. I think France have been poor for a long time, but we always held on to the belief that perhaps they could pull something out of the bag. Uh, consistently now we realise France aren't in a position to pull anything out of a bag. Uh, le- uh, certainly um, a good performance uh, is, is just doesn't, it, it seems beyond them. Even though they beat Ireland, it certainly wasn't a good performance. Um, Scotland, I, you know, I have a little bit of hope in Scotland, although they, they generally tend to, um, um, tend to let me down. Um, Wales are playing a really boring type of rugby. They're playing a Warren Ball Max, as it were. I think they're taking very little risk. They're very attritional. Um, and I don't think it'll be enough to beat England, who are, for me, um, the little ray of light. Uh, I can certainly see that Eddie Jones is trying to do something different. Yes, he's picking a very big pack, but he's certainly, I, I can see he's trying to operate or t- try to implement a second wave of attackers. And we saw very early on in that game against Ireland, Binny Volopola had a massive game, but in the first two carries, he actually didn't take it into contact. He dropped it off the back um, uh, twice to Ford, who, who then tried to, uh, to move the ball wide. He did with some success, but the, the, you could see England are still trying to work it out, and their, their wide players were a little too flat. They weren't fully there on the second wave. Now, that's something that England are only going to get better at. Um, Ireland, I think, have been better, they were, they were, but they were good um, for periods against, um, against Wales, I th- I, certainly with the side they picked. I was impressed by some of the, the play um, that they performed that day. I thought they had a really off day against France. They weren't good enough all over the park. And I thought for periods against um, England, certainly, and I'm not talking about the bravery, I'm, thinking, I'm talking mm. about the, um, the, tactically, I thought there was, there was some chinks of light there, which they'll need to certainly... Um, and they'll build upon against Italy, and we'd like to see them build on against Scotland. So uh, I think Matt is right, though. The quality of the tournament is a concern for Northern Hemisphere teams. Um, but if we're talking about, this, uh, as Matt said there, that there's a lack of quality in the players that are involved, then surely that you know, sort of defeats the previous argument to say that it's all about a coach that's um, inhibiting the team. I think that it is that we have to accept at the moment that certainly with the retirements and injuries that Ireland have sustained over the Six Nations, that there is a problem with the, the depth of talent that we have uh, just at the moment. Um, now, we've had a few guys come through, a new a couple of new guys who've really shown that, that they might be doing something, and that that's another chink of light. But I think we are... Um, we are some ways behind the six, uh, behind the, the southern hemisphere. Um, the points, maybe the point scoring system, uh, certainly could have something to do with it. I think our refereeing is more important uh, because there's certainly a different game refereed in the southern hemisphere than there is in the nor- northern hemisphere. Unless that is addressed, unless the refereeing and, and the breakdown is addressed in the northern hemisphere, we're going to still struggle because at the moment there are almost two different games that are being played. That's not to say that it means that the Southern Hemisphere teams can walk over the Northern Hemisphere uh, when they come up here uh, because um, they have they struggle with some of the elements of our game that they aren't used to. But I think um, if we are going to move forward and catch up in some of the elements that the Southern Hemisphere are good at, I think we have to look at it refereeing more than anything else. What needs to change for Ireland this weekend, Matt? Well, <laughs> if we got three hours... Um, what needs to change? Look, I'd love to see what Shane just spoke about there. You know, if if you have a line out and, and Paul O'Connell gets injured like he did in in the World Cup, the player that comes in steps into the line out. The line out doesn't change. 
the movement and the calls and the line-out remains the same. Everyone has to know it. I'd, and, and this is my point that I'm, I'm disagreeing with, with Shane on. Shane spoke about England playing the balls out the back where you had Vinopola taking the ball forward and you're dishing out the back of forward and you're going wide. That's a structure. That's an attacking structure. If I could see that in Ireland's play, I would say that's the coach. That I can see the coach's hand in that play. Now, therefore, if the, that's not been executed, it's the player. Now, I can't see that structure. I can't see the players putting footwork on. And I would love to see some footwork. I'd love to see them sidestep just before they get to contact, like we're seeing the Southern Hemisphere players doing and like Irish players used to do. Irish players did this. Ireland were very good at this. I'd love to see footwork. I'd love to see some decoy runners. I'd like to see the, the defenders not being able to say, before the ball comes out of the ruck, I know who's getting the ball. That bloke there is getting the ball. Let's get up and bash him. I'd like to see some form of decoy. I'd love to see us in the 22 do something in the, in the red zone, in the attacking zone, have something besides a nine passing to a forward who's slotting it up, a nine passing to a forward who's slotting it up, because you're never going to get across the line. You know, I've got to see some of that. And I can I can tell you what, guys, I'll tell you what, and I'm, I'm really sad at this because I'm sounding so negative and I'm not a negative person. I don't believe it's going to happen. I don't believe we're going to see anything but what we've seen. And that's... Uh, that's that's my, I have a lot of regret about that. Well, you know, I there's two. There, I can I think I found a bit of common ground to agree with <laughs> Matt, and at the same time, I found uh, another area that we disagree on. I think I couldn't agree more with him that I am sick of seeing Ireland in the opposition twenty-two, the halfback passing a pass of maybe four meters to a forward standing still, and I'm going to ground immediately and expecting to do that to somehow speed up the ball or, or to drag in extra defenders and at some point in the future um, to have an overlap. That consistently hasn't been happening for Ireland. It hasn't been happening for a long time. Um, that I can see as um, something that has been implemented by the coach, maybe for for good reasons, but it's not working anymore and it hasn't worked for a long time. It has to stop. So if I never see that again, I'll be happy. Um, I also agree with him that we have to have a decoy, we have to have animation, we have to have that second wave in the 22, because at the moment, and I'm harping on this, it's so easy for the um, defensive team to know where the ball is going. And if you know where the ball is going or is likely to go uh, as a defender in your own 22, it removes a huge amount of stress. When you think there's a possibility, a backdoor option, or you've got a forward that can offload the ball, or a forward, heaven forbid, that can pass behind another forward's back to, another, to a back, then there's panic stations in the 22. Even though you've got numbers in the line, it's panic stations. So I would really like to see that, and I think it needs to change. I think that you know what's gone over, what's gone on in the last um, number of weeks. You know, Joe Smith is. I rate him as a coach. I rate him as a as a as a man who likes to see players take the right options, and he's very strong on video analysis. There is no doubt that if Matt can see it and I can see it, then Joe Schmidt can see it. And if he can see it, I can't see the the logic behind not changing it. Um, so I think he'll recognise, he'll also know, as, as um, Matt has said, that this isn't just about Italy this week or maybe Scotland next week, but there is a firestorm coming down the track over the next number of months with big games. 
And in order to beat those teams, in order you know, to, to reiterate his position in, in uh, Irish rugby, um, Joe needs to implement those changes. And I think he'll certainly be attempting to do it. Uh, whether we see it on Monday, on um, on Saturday, I'll be interested to see if we if we see the genesis of something different. If he has empowered to do, them to do it, um, because I think he'll be able to analyse it correctly. If he has empowered them to do it and they don't, then that's a real concern. And uh, we'll be asking questions on Monday as to as to why they feel the need, especially against Italy, not to perform without restriction. Well, lads, at least I think I'm looking forward to the Six Nations this weekend. After that, uh, Maddie Shane, great, <laughs> great debate. Thanks for chatting to us. Pleasure, Matt. Nice Thanks, Matt. All up in the interweb. Owen McDevitt. Worldwide. The Murph and Mackey for most welcome Irishman of the year goes to Owen McDevitt. Owen, 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 Owen McDevitt. From Ireland's second captain show. All up in the interweb. Owen McDevitt. Worldwide. Second captains. Those guys are like, those guys are like family to me, man. This is like the coolest song I ever heard in my whole life. Owen McDevitt. All of you said I wouldn't make Stop it. Stop talking about Tom Finney. He said I was a loser. This guy is a bit of a turkey. <laughs> All right. He said I was a fucking psycho. But look at me now. All up in the interweb. Owen McDevitt. Worldwide. To say, for example, the Barcelona team you worked at, is it fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Okay, Murph, what are the games this weekend? When are they on so people can plan what they're doing? Uh, well, we're up first. Uh, some would say the highlight of the weekend. Not not many people, mm. but Ireland Italy is on at one uh, thirty, uh, followed by England Wales at four o'clock uh, live from Twickenham. And then Scotland-France is the Sunday game, and that's at 3 o'clock. Uh, Ken, we've discussed how a burger endorsement deal was cruelly swiped from under Merce's nose by Sean O'Brien. Endorsement collapses nothing in comparison to what has happened in Ria Sharpova. Nike, Tag Heuer and Porsche have all gone running. Yeah. Um, I have always been honest, says Maria Sharpova. Uh, not really. I mean, it depends on how you define honesty, I suppose. Uh, uh, definitely, it means something different from transparency. In the sense that uh, she didn't think it was relevant to mention that she was taking this um, drug which is prescribed for a heart failure uh, for 10 years uh, until she failed a drug test when it was made illegal and she continued uh, taking it according to herself without knowing uh, that it was illegal. So, yeah, I mean, I think it it raises a, a really interesting question in terms of what doping is and what... I mean, obviously, she has she has been doping. She's taken a banned substance. She's tested positive for it. She's going to get banned, and she deserves to be. Um, there's the issue, though, of the fact that she wasn't doing anything different in January 2016 from what she was doing in December 2015 and for 10 years before that. It's just it's suddenly considered to be cheating now. It actually always was cheating, in my opinion. It always was cheating. It's against the spirit of the sport. It's like a substance they haven't realized. A performance-enhancing drug that hasn't been banned yet is okay to take. But, I mean, this is the this is the whole problem with this area now, and it's only going to get more and more difficult. I mean, you've got a situation where the, the whole world is becoming more and more medicalized. I mean, there are so many more uh, chemicals, sort of known chemicals, supplements that people could take. I mean, if you think, you think back to 100 years ago, people thought, well, what? 
you know, what really does an athlete need? Steak and whiskey. You know, that, that's basically, it didn't get any more sophisticated than that. Uh, and now it's kind of like, well, leaving aside all the banned performance-enhancing drugs, there's any number of, you know, legal supplements, which are performance-enhancing. That's why people take them. So what's the difference between them really in, in spirit and, the, and the, the stuff that actually has got onto the banned list at this moment? The fact is that these athletes are cheating in spirit, you know, maybe maybe keeping the letter of the law, but it's obvious that a huge number of them will will break the spirit of the law. And you begin to wonder at what point is this current is this anti doping scheme gonna mm. gonna remain sustainable. If you make the if you make the WADA uh, doping anti doping list, if you make that the line yeah. so if you're on one side of the line, you're competing honestly, and if you're on the other side of that line, you're a doper. Mm. If 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 that's the line, then Maria Sharapova didn't cross that line until January first, twenty sixteen. Yeah. If that if that's what your definition of cheating is, then she didn't cross it until January first, twenty sixteen. But if you consider the fact that you're supposed to take this drug for four to six weeks, no more than twice a year, mm. and she's taken it nonstop for ten years, yeah. obviously. It but has also, to be she's cheating. she's she's making. When you consider how stupid she must think the public must be as well, she's not saying that. Listen, this wasn't on the on the on the water list, uh, and therefore it's o- it was okay for me to take it now. And it was yeah. obviously had performance enhancing qualities. She's saying that she you know had a history of diabetes in her family. This is very very so their health issues that she had, and this is the reason why she's taking, it, which is outrageous as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of balls. Like I mean, she you know she claimed that she had some vague, very vague episode of illness 10 years ago and for some reason she's always been on this drug ever since it's a joke like i mean so everyone can see what was actually going on there she thought well this stuff isn't bad i'm not doing anything wrong you know it's 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 obviously good stuff but um so what's the difference between her taking that to play devil's advocate for a second what's the difference between her taking meldonium which is mm. not which up until january 1st this year was not cheating. Mm. So it's not cheating. If you take it, you can take it. There might there may be health risks to yourself. You take them on board. Mm. What's the difference between that and sleeping in an oxygen tent? Well, one difference that I can think of is that meldonium is a prescription medication. You know what I mean? You have to get a prescription from a doctor to actually get this stuff. Like, it's, it's, it's supposed to be to treat an illness, and you're taking it in the absence of an illness. But, you know, what's an illness really? I mean... Is normality kind of like an illness? Couldn't it be a bit better? I mean, compared to how good you could be, isn't mm. just to be kind of organic and in your natural organic state actually to be kind of restricted? You weak, could be better. Weak, puny. There could be an enhanced version of yourself out there. I mean, the, uh, I just find it difficult to know. It, it's, it's so arbitrary now, that line. It's like, take any of these things and you're banned, but all these other things that we haven't thought to put on the list, that they're okay to take. You know, that's effectively what the system says at the moment. And it's, it's, it's incoherent. You know what I mean? It doesn't really make sense. Uh, a, a system that would be coherent would be if everybody was allowed to take whatever they wanted and had to reveal, had to disclose what they were taking. And then, you, then at least you could say, well, you know, Sharapova's on Meldonium, uh, but, you know, X, her opponent was on blah, you know, maybe. And at least then you'd have a, a sense so of... So they just have to declare their, a ther- true picture. their therapeutic use exemption. Yeah, well, saying. no, I don't mean a therapeutic use exemption. I mean, I mean, you know, allow them to take, allow them to take whatever performance enhancers they think they can get away with. That's what they're kind of doing anyway. Mm. They're finding ones that you know aren't on the the band list. But I mean, stuff that's on the band list. It's not like stuff is on the band list because it's bad. Most of the stuff is medicine. 
it's it's medicine use like EPO is a thing for for you know treating anemia or like kidney failure. You know, insulin is on the banned list. You you know, you need I take insulin every day, or you know, I'm in I'm in big trouble. It's not it's not like these things are all massively damaging to health. Most of them are, are medicines which are used to treat illness, which are then used by athletes who aren't ill to be better in some aspect of physical performance. You know what and I mean? If if your system uh, comes true, then. Uh, the person who can afford the best drugs ends up winning all sporting events. Well, that's kind of what's been happening anyway, isn't it? Like, look at Sharapova, you know? She's, she's like the richest... Uh, I was amazed to, to read that about her, actually. The richest woman in sport for the last 10 years. Incredible. I mean, we, you know, it doesn't, I think her 20% of her earnings are, are tennis-related and 80% mm. sponsorship or whatever. But, you know, she's uh, a rich athlete who has access to... The best, you know, the best family doctor. She mentioned her family doctor. I'm sure he's a top. I'm sure he's a top guy. To the same extent, would there be any difference then in, we'll say, the top football teams? You know, the very top football teams around the world, do they medicalize to improve performance? I'm sure they do Absolutely. in some capacity. Absolutely. So do. it's a similar situation there where what you want is everybody to declare what's going on and everybody to declare exactly what they're taking. Yeah. Uh, you know, whether it's off the bandwater list or, or yeah, not. Yeah, because the, the, whole, the whole system is now so complicated it, you, you, when the idea of doping controls were brought in what are we talking about the 1970s you know what I mean and doping itself was fairly unsophisticated and you could see what they were what they were thinking about like oh you know there were people taking the steroids you know what I mean it's all very simple um, and we, we you know that shouldn't be allowed because it's clearly bad for health I mean you can see that but now there's just this massive uh, multiplication of the things that you can take or chemicals which people know will influence or improve your performance in various subtle ways. Loads of them are legal and some of them arbitrarily aren't. You know what I mean? So people are just taking legal ones or, or ones that people don't, haven't even, you know, Sharp Pubbis is a really good example. It's a sophisticated thing that she was doing. You know, it, 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 it highlights how the system is breaking down, I think, because all of these supposedly clean, not all, but, uh, you know, I would say a majority of supposedly clean athletes are doing this kind of thing. In what sense is it really any better? They're taking performance-enhancing substances that they shouldn't be taking. She's taking a prescription medication. She doesn't have the illness that the medication is supposed to address. She's taking it because it's a performance enhancer, but it's not illegal. So does that make her morally any better than somebody who takes a banned performance enhancer? I don't think it does. I mean, it makes her smarter. That's the only thing. It's the only difference. Well, until the 1st January of January 2016 when she became... She Dumb joined, uh, again. Yeah. Kenneth, what's happening in today's football show? Available to download and stream right now. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. France are going to the World Cup. Get over This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Boom, 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 the foul. Boom, 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 the yellow card. Nah, that's actually bollocks out. I have to ask you to mind your language. And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Good lad. I don't throw teacups. It's not my style. I think I'd rather throw punches. What you doing down here, you shorty man? <laughs> yeah, we talked a bit about the mother of all games, um, which is the uh, which is obviously tonight. The game might be over by the time you're listening to this. So you'll know whether or not... What a game it was. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody hell, I, I did not see that coming. What happened? We talked about Chelsea beating or losing to PSG and, and really having to... Coming to the end of a cycle in a big way and uh, Rafael Benitez, whether he's about to throw away what remains of his reputation by taking over Newcastle. Don't forget, we'll also have this. The magpies, renowned as the most intelligent of birds, and 11 magpies would probably have made a better job of this FA Cup tie than humans selected by Steve McLaren. Look at that! Oh, look at that! Oh, 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 oh
Bills. Interesting. Very interesting. Oh. Ken's Ghouls. I was, it wasn't bad, was it? <laughs> yes, a fresh Ken's Ghouls. We'll yes. be in the football podcast today. Non-FA Cup-related uh, ghouls, but a Champions League ghouls. You, uh, you asked and you received, Mark, ghouls. Let's get to US Murph. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game. No matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series. Yeah, my favourite thing about getting to present this show is that I get to speak to this guy. How are you doing, Brian? Ah, uh, is it really your favourite thing? Are you telling the truth, Mark? I is am. It your number one favourite thing? 100%. On. 100%. I'm not. I think it's just you feeling the power in the big chair. The big chair, the big microphone, the McDevitt aura just descending on you, man. So, I may have said exactly uh, the same thing to Shane Horgan and Maddie Williams there a few minutes ago, but don't worry about <laughs> it. So uh, I'll be your second favourite thing. But happy to be here, delighted, and uh, nice to talk to you, uh, Mark, and... And Murph, and, and, and good to be back. Listen, we've yet to speak to you about the election race in the US, and we're starting to get seriously concerned for humanity here, Brian, because since our last show, Trump has tightened his grip on the Republican nomination with three more primary victories in Michigan, Mississippi, and Hawaii. Um, what's disturbing is that his popularity seems resilient to any attacks from Republicans and the media and whoever else. Um, we wanted to know, how political do you get on your show? Because you can't really ignore this guy, and I'm sure there must be references to him in your correspondence with listeners and things like that. How political do we get on our show? Mm. Um, you know, I don't know how you guys do it over there. You're probably, probably freer and easier over there than we are. I don't know. But, man, it is such a third rail. It's such a hot-button issue that if we stick our head into that lion's mouth and start talking about how terrifying Donald Trump is or how we can't believe what's happening to our country or that this is some sort of cruel practical joke or that we feel like we're part of some sort of a, 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 a like we're uh, being a a scene from the apprentice or something like that is playing out. We can't really do that. We can't, we kind of get, we kind of get in trouble. Although, I mean, this might be a case where we finally go ahead and start doing it. If things continue, because it's so crazy and so surreal what's going on, but we don't, we do. We always err on the side of what my grandfather always told me was uh, in mixed company, never talk politics, religion, or another man's wife. So we'll make vague allusions here and there. Mm. We'll make a joke here and there that indicates that this guy's uh, uh, a whack job and all that. But we can't, if we go too much on it, you'd be surprised at how many people get upset and they say they come to they come to KMBR and the Murphy Maxwell to get away from all that, to get away from all that. So... You know, our job is to provide a product for them, right? We're there every morning for four hours. What do they want from us? Well, hopefully, first and foremost, they want entertainment. And then secondly, first and foremost, they would want, you know, entertainment via the sports world. Probably the third thing would be entertainment via our takes on pop culture and the world around us. So the Trump phenomenon would fall under three, but it wouldn't even really because once you get into politics, it gets so emotional and people get so uh, people get so bent that you'd be amazed actually that I'll make a, just a couple of comments. Just, I mean, I mean, in 365 days, if I make three or four side comments during the year about if I think Trump is a whack job or something like that, you wouldn't believe the amount of texts and tweets and people who telling you that they will never forget it. And then they think of you, then they paint you into a corner 
they uh, they they come at you and think that you're some sort of like Bernie Sanders socialist or you're you're uh, some sort of communist or that you, you that you don't want to uh, whatever you don't believe in America or whatever. It's a delicate dance. You'd love to go off on it. We don't really, although we do. Once a guy becomes president, it's kind of fair game for us to kind of pick at his personality peccadillos, and that's not really his politics. But like when George W. Bush was president, he was a soundbite machine with all his gaffes or kind of silly things he would say and his the way his little Texas accent to made everything funny. So we could riff on that. And now Obama, I remember when he first got elected, I remember thinking, this guy is so sort of straight down the middle, there's really nothing you can make fun of with Obama. But we have found through the years that Obama, as much of a sports fan as he tries to be, will, will like kind of slip up and like kind of say the wrong thing or use the wrong verbiage or, or pronounce a guy's name wrong that proves that he's not really that big of a sports fan. So we've kind of riffed on that throughout the years of how Obama like tries to come off as the cool sports fan, but isn't as much of a sports fan as George W. Bush was, although I think he's a huge NBA fan for sure. So that's the kind of thing we riff on. So once a guy becomes president, we sort of make fun of his peccadillos, but in the primary season, when it's all a free for all, we kind of leave that leave that a little bit out on the edge. But on your podcast, I can talk about it. What the hell? Why not? <laughs> I see Trump has the support of your fellow uh, fellow California boy Tom Brady. Um, Trump <laughs> swept the Republican primary in Massachusetts last week, and he had a theory as to just how that happened. Here's his quote to the New York Times: "Honestly, in that part of the world, a reference like Tom Brady saying Trump's the biggest winner, Trump is a friend of mine, that makes an incredible difference. Tom Brady's a great friend of mine. He's a winner, and he likes winners. He was very helpful to us in Massachusetts on Tuesday. Does." Uh, Brady's support of Trump make you rethink being a fan of his? <laughs> uh, no, I don't. It's very, it's weird, but you know what you find, guys? I don't know if you have this over there in European athletes, but you find almost exclusively that incredibly wealthy athletes skew conservative all the time. And it's mostly for one reason and one reason only, taxes. They just like their money and they don't want their money taxed. And, of course, the Republicans and, and the conservatives generally believe in a much lighter tax code than the Democrats who believe in taxes to help the needy and help the social programs for the underprivileged. So that's kind of basically your fundamental philosophy over here is that the Republican Party is light on taxes and the Democratic Party is heavier on taxes. I mean, of course, there's twists and turns to each of those takes. So mostly you find that these athletes support uh, the Republicans. So it's almost – and it's almost dramatically unusual to find a pro athlete who supports a Democrat. I think we've talked about this on the show years ago, that in the golf world, especially, I remember David Duvall came out as a supporter, I think, of Al Gore or something like that in 2000. It might have been Al Gore, it might have been John Kerry, one of the two, or Bill Clinton. And it was like, oh, my God, stop the presses. It's an anomaly. Where'd they find this guy? What's going on? Does he need to check into a hospital, have his head checked? A golfer who supports a Democrat is unheard of. So, so we're conditioned to find that our pro athletes support conservative Republican candidates. Now, that said, the one thing I would say that's unusual is that Obama's presidency has changed that dynamic a little bit because a lot, and I mean a lot of NBA players have supported Obama primarily because of their, their pride in his, in, in the, in the history he made as being the first black president for our country. I mean, such a mind blowing thing that we're now used to after eight years. But if you think about this country's 240 years, and think about what Obama did. It is it truly is mind blowing. And I found most of the NBA players who are black have rallied around Obama for the social uh, importance of his presidency. And that's really the only time I've ever seen athletes openly and and in big numbers support a Democratic candidate. So for Brady to do this, 
doesn't surprise me that much. He's a hugely rich guy. He he moves in those circles of the hugely rich. Trump, he plays golf. Trump's a big golf guy. And he probably never thought that Trump would run for president. Probably thought Trump was just a bombastic friend who could, you know, play golf with him at fancy courses and they could talk about money and taxes together. And now he's kind of thrust into the situation of Trump running for president. I would think even six months ago, nobody, even six weeks ago, nobody thought Donald Trump would be where he is. Even as we talk, like you mentioned coming in, he just won last night uh, three primaries. So people are trying to analyze what does that mean? You know, he still might not win the nomination, believe it or not. There's still a chance that the Republican establishment can block his nomination at the summer uh, convention. Uh, So it's not a fait accompli. Nobody's been forced to make any stands or stances yet. Uh, So it'll be interesting. I did, you know, he's already got one guy in the golf world, John Daly. He came out and supported Donald Trump. Surprise, surprise. Shocker, yeah. I know. It was like like if you had to draw up – the ideal Donald Trump voter, like in a laboratory, you would create John Daly. You know, <laughs> I can't be like, OK, I'm going to put one part this, one part that, one part that. Poof, out comes John Daly. Yeah. And the, the endorsement of uh, sports people in the past, I, 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 I'm, I'm struggling to remember uh, someone like other than the Obama uh, uh, example that you've just given uh, of a sporting endorsement, making it like a huge difference in an actual electoral campaign, as Trump is uh, suggesting happened in the Massachusetts primary last week. That's a good call. Uh, an athlete who swung the votes and changed the votes. I wonder just in general how much endorsements mean in general, because, you know, if you want to get into the nitty gritty of politics, you know, in South Carolina, that was a big Republican primary early on before Trump had really, you know, he had lost Iowa to Ted Cruz. And then the South Carolina governor, Nikki Haley, who I think is pretty popular, came out and endorsed Marco Rubio, and then Trump won South Carolina. And then Mitt Romney, of course, the 2012 nominee for the Republicans, came out with this massive speech about how he, you know, Donald Trump's a phony and a fraud and be the worst thing ever, and he tried to take down Trump. And, and Romney's home state is Michigan, and then Trump won Michigan. So I wonder about endorsements in general. But as far as athletes endorsing uh, and changing the course of elections, I'm going to go ahead and say that that is once more a largely grandiose statement from the lips of Donald Trump, who is no stranger to grandiose statements. So um, he's wearing that Make America Great Great Again hat. It, it's unbelievable. I mean, when he first started wearing those hats, I just I was like kind of I was just laughing. It was like it was like something out of the Onion or something, you know. I'm just like even walking around with these hats on, and now they're like. Everybody wants to wear them, and Brady, I think Brady had one in his locker, yeah, I believe. Photographs yeah, taken so, last, last season, so, yeah. I mean, it's just like, come on, man. So did Brady's endorsement, I mean, maybe on some tertiary level, maybe there was something going on. But I think really what you're seeing is just this, the Trump phenomenon is a rejection of all of the status quo. And, and I think he's just benefiting from the fact that he appears to be the first candidate in years to just not give a not give an F. And remember, guys, he's only he's only winning Republican primaries. This is not the general mm-hmm. election. He hasn't gone up against he hasn't tested his wares uh, to the general population, only to his people, the Republicans. So, I mean, it is I mean, before we before we write off America is going completely off the cliff. I mean, there's a strong chance that if he's the nominee, he would lose the general election quite handily. So, uh, but, but to his people on the Republican side who have viewed the Obama presidency as eight years of politically correct, wimpy, liberal 
pansy America, he is the and he's kind of brilliant, isn't he, for saying he's for sniffing that out and and saying I'm going to position myself as the exact opposite of that. And therefore, I think that's why he's winning all these uh, these Republican primaries. One thing that struck me was that Trump's interest in sports seems to be mainly about getting attention even more than making money, Brian. Pretending to buy the New York Jets, pretending to buy the Buffalo Bills, always photographed the Flushing Meadows, getting involved with Mike Tyson and obviously getting attention, shaking hands at Rory McIlroy at the weekend. Um, this is one of the primary functions of sport in America, I think, a way for rich people to get attention. Oh, yeah. Well, look at that. I mean, you look at the NFL owners kind of club and, and all that. It. it, it it is truly a, and, and here we go. I was going to use an analogy that remember Donald Trump talked about his hands and what that meant mm-hmm. for his manhood. Mm. Well, that's what that's what sports ownership is in the in, in America. It's a way to brag about how big your hands are in America. So this is what guys do. These are not the pro, it's not the province of of uh, you know meek men who are just interested in owning a sports team. No, this is a a giant trophy on the mantelpiece for big-time alpha male capitalist Americans who want to have their – who want to be known, first of all, because there's so many – I mean, if you look at it, how many, how many millionaires or billionaires are there in this country? Well, there's a lot, you know, and how many of them own sports teams? Well, only 32 own NFL teams and only 30 own NBA teams and only 30 own Major League Baseball teams. You put those three together, that's still less than 100 people, so less than 100 of these billionaires – are in this quote unquote club, this ultimate boys club. And so that's why I think it is. I mean, we have a guy here, the Golden State Warriors, and we've, you know, you guys are well indoctrinated in the Warriors. You're essentially, uh, you're part of Dub Nation as far as I'm concerned, is uh, their owner, Joe Lacob, is a venture capitalist. And people kind of wondered, who is this guy? We didn't know much about him. And once we, once he's bought the team, I mean, the braggadocio statements that he makes and the, and the large chest thumping that he does, you start to see, oh, this is what these guys are like. These guys are all these guys are all overly competitive. Uh, this is how they got their money. This is how they amassed their riches. And now they get to be in the paper, on the TV, on the radio, on the podcast. They get their names out there. And it's all, you know, it's all rooted in the fear of dying, guys. That's my big theory. They're, they just want to be heard from before they head to the grave. Uh, last question, Brian. Are any of your friends Trump voters? Not one has come out and admitted it. I would say right like now. That as, is it like that as well? That you know, the, if if uh, uh, you're you're in a, a, a social group that even if you are supporting Donald Trump, you're probably not going to be shouting it from the rooftops. Totally, it's like uh, it's I, 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 it's funny. Next time I'm going to be with my out with my friends, I'm going to survey the table closely and try to try to sniff out which one is the closet Podraft Trump test. supporter, right? <laughs> especially in California, guys, in the in the Bay Area where we're so liberal and Obama comes here all the time to collect his money and so does Hillary. Uh, it'd be very surprising. But I got to imagine the odds are that one of my friends is, right? I mean, just math would tell you that uh, that one of them is. So I'm going to do some investigation, guys, see if I can't beat the bushes and find one. F- I'll find one for you. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. <laughs> All right, take care, guys. And he's my second captain. Second captain. That's uh-huh. the humorous competition. I thought that. Important man for my selection.
Do you know I'm loath to give the impression to US Murph that we've got our political system down and that the Irish people would never be lured by such an inflammatory and offensive figure. Let us never forget how we demeaned ourselves by literally rolling out the red carpet for this asshole when he arrived in Shannon Airport less than two years ago. Yeah. How embarrassing was that? Yeah, it wasn't at least one minister? It was our minister for finance bowing down in his presence and of course the presence of the harpist, the violinist and the singer we laid on for Trump on the (laughs) runway. (laughs) Now that was like something from The Onion. And to be fair... I, we did call it at the time as well. I mean, you know, there were a lot of people in fairness who did not who saw straight through that. Yeah, like Im- immediately, that is just patently idiotic and stupid. And for those of you out of Ireland at the moment and not listening to all the political coverage, you are very lucky. Before I came in this morning, Willie O'Dea was back telling the country how it is. Mm. How the hell did that happen? <laughs> and the uh, Healy Rays uh, had a concert uh, on Leinster House, an impromptu uh, Cayley with uh, three junior members of the Healy Ray family, I believe. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, not all in the garden is, is rosy here either. Anyway, time to talk about more serious matters before we finish up. So in 1978, oh, do you want a Jimmy Nesbitt fact? I should probably no. ask both of you. Does it matter? You've played the bed now, Mark. In 1978, when he was 13, his parents took him to audition for the Riverside Theatre's Christmas production of Oliver. Nesbitt sang Bohemian Rhapsody at the audition and won the part of the Arful Dodger, who he played in his acting debut. That's a pretty good part. You ever auditioned for a school play or anything, Ken? Yeah. Yeah, I, I was in a school play. Go on. You got the part. Why here? How, how come we haven't heard this before? Did, did you sing yeah, Bohemian yeah, Rhapsody to get the part? Yeah. No, I didn't. I played Bohemian Rhapsody once on the piano in the school, um, like, recital. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I really did do that. Pretty uh, pretty slick, yeah. You weren't accompanying Jimmy Nesbitt, were you singing? Uh, no. No, I uh, I was a tree in uh, Sleeping Beauty. Big, big Whoa. part? Yeah, I was a tree, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the parts were basically, there was a the handsome prince... The evil witch and the beautiful princess. Yeah, you didn't really fit into any three, any one of those, really. And then there was a lot of trees because, if you recall, in Sleeping Beauty, she cast a spell. Were you one of the trees uh, in a non-speaking role? Well, the trees were all non-speaking roles. (laughs) Uh, The trees, it turned out, were kind of a dancing role. Right. Okay. Yeah. But this was a problem for me uh, because. I went home and I told my dad, Dad, I'm a tree in the play. And he said, all right. Get I out said, of my house. <laughs> I, said, I said, you have to make me a costume so I can be a tree. Yeah. And he said, okay. He started thinking away, you know. Yeah. And uh, essentially he he then con- constructed this uh, this tree costume out of a couple of Pampers boxes. Yeah. You know, right. I had my sister was a baby at the time. Yeah. So the, he, he got a couple of Pampers boxes, kind of stuck them together, put brown paper around them or whatever, and put two armholes in and then got these two kind of heavy, uh, like, you know, the kind of stuff that you might put a poster in, you know, like, you yeah, know, that kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. cylindrical tube, tube yeah. stuck two of them in and then like stuck pieces of green paper around to, to show the leaves or whatever. And then like made the kind of a, a little Pampers box brown hat yeah. to, to put on. So you can imagine like a little, like a Dalek, like a brown Dalek shaped Pampers box clumping thing, yeah. right? To- actually, completely immobile. But when I got, so I thought, oh, okay, fair enough. At least nobody can really see me in this. But when I got in, I discovered that all the other trees basically had like brown clothes and like little leaves kind of stuck to their clothes, mm. right? They're just like children with brown outfits with with 
with like foliage yeah. stuck to them. And they were kind of dancing around <laughs> in a circle. <laughs> they were kind of dancing around. They were the enchanted forest around the, around the castle. Yeah, yeah. And they kind of danced and held hands and went around in a circle. Yeah. But I was there like this, like just clump, clumping thing. Entirely <laughs> like, a Yeah, even my arms were like in these kind of cylindrical <laughs> tubes. And I couldn't move at all. And, I was, and, you know, I had like, so the teacher eventually just put me in the middle. Yeah. And like Sleeping Beauty was kind of sleeping <laughs> at my feet, if you know what I mean, at the foot of the tree. I was the kind of central magic tree. But, you know, I, I was kind of in there and I felt excluded, to be honest, from the whole yeah. thing. And no one could see me. I couldn't move. I couldn't do anything in the play. I was there in the play, but nobody knew. It sounds like you ruined an otherwise excellent production. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, it just kind of seems like as a teacher, it, you're kind of, you're, you're uh, negligent in your duty if... You pick a play that only has three major roles and the rest of the year, like well, how many kids? Like eighty kids well, what, dressed you, in stupid tree outfits. Yeah, but you think you think the school play has, should be like the wire. It, it should be, be everyone has like every character piece. is equally important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the Godfather, you know, like a modern day retelling of the Godfather in Temple Oak in the early nineties. I mean, I would have paid money to see that. Yeah, I would pay money to see that now. To be to be yeah. fair, but. Um, Maybe just just something for all you teachers out there to, to think about. Okay, that's it from us. The main man, the golden goose, Owen McDevitt, will be back on all four shows next week. Thanks again on this, the week of our third birthday to all you listening right now, wherever you are in the world. Shout out once again to John Carroll and the Leighton Stone Massive. We're sending him that t-shirt anyway, right? Ah, uh, Of course we are. I just What would Donald Trump do, Mark? Uh, thanks that also, guy's a loser. Thanks also to the Irish Times and Robert Direct for all the support. Sad. Follow us on Twitter at Second Captains and email us at secondcaptains at irishtimes.com. I had a great time, lads. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Thanks Mark. Kenny. Thanks, Karen. Thanks for listening. See you back here next week. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.